Well, it's great to be here today at the 8 a.m. Um, we love College Park Church. We never thought we'd be in Indiana. We moved from Minnesota in May of 2017, and I've been here since June then in an official capacity as a pastoral resident for community. So thank you for loving my family well, and uh, we just love being here. It's such a privilege. Uh, turn with me to Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Did you know that there are people who actually long to work in Buckingham Palace? Why would they want to work in Buckingham Palace? Well, Buckingham Palace is one of the most dignified places in the United Kingdom. It's probably one of the most dignified places in the world. So there's hundreds of people who work at the palace, from people washing dishes to butlers, and there are actually schools that you can go to to prepare to just interview to be a butler at the palace. Imagine being one of these people and imagine the draw of a job like this. You get to work in one of the most dignified places with some of the most dignified people and you might get to have interactions with them. Imagine that after investing all this money and time into going to a school just to prepare, you did actually get the job. Despite all the people that applied, you got a job to be a butler in the Queen's Palace. I'm going to guess that you're going to take that job pretty seriously. It's not going to be just some other job, and, but it's going to be a job that you take seriously. You're not working at the dump, but you're working at Buckingham Palace. Not only that, I'm pretty sure that if someone asks you to do something or asks a certain way that they like their tea, you're going to make sure exactly that that tea is given to them exactly the way that they want it. You're going to do your job seriously. And you're probably going to be pretty happy that you're at Buckingham Palace. Friends, listen to this. If, if someone who is a butler or is washing the dishes in the Queen's Palace can do their job with serious joy, how much more those of us who are known and loved by God? Christians are called to serious joy, and we're going to see in this text a couple parts to that call. The first call we'll see in verses 12 to 13, the call to serious faith. And then in 14 to 18, Paul gives the call to joyful faith. So join with me in 12 to 13 as we dive into the first part of this call. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So let's discuss this call to serious faith. There are a couple ways that people generally look at these two verses. It's not that these ways of looking at them are, are wrong, but I believe that it misses the emphasis of what Paul is trying to say. And so I, I want to talk about these couple ways of viewing it before we talk about what I believe to be the emphasis. So if you hear it in the future, if you're studying the Bible, you can kind of distinguish between um, some slight nuances. So what does it mean that we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Well, the first and common way that some will look at it is that this is a passage that means that we need to be really careful. We need to be really careful that we don't rely on our past successes as a guarantee for the future. 
And while that may be true, I don't believe that to be the emphasis that Paul is getting at. But what they'll say is that, you know, we, we need to be cautious in our Christian life. And, and verses like, we war not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers in the heavenly places come to mind. And this is, this is true, but the emphasis places very little on the middle phrase, for God is at work in you. It doesn't deal with why that is there. This is a letter of encouragement. Paul wrote the letter of Philippians to encourage the Philippians. They're one of the more healthy churches. It's not a letter of rebuke. So it seems odd and in a sense that this can actually tend towards a sense of legalism if we focus too heavily on the phrase, work out your salvation. So that's a first way that some look at it. Let's look at a, a second way. And I, I like this way too. I'm not saying that it's not truthful again. But is it what Paul is saying? The, the second way splits the verse right between 12 and 13. So you could draw a line right before the word for. In a way, it's like saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And God is at work in you to will and to work his good pleasure. So you're putting it on equal levels Notice what I did there. I, I put the word and in there. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling and God is at work in you. What that's saying is that we are responsible to work out our salvation and yet God is sovereign at the same time. Is that what Paul's saying? Surely that's true. God is calling us to work and, and yet he is responsible in accomplishing things. We see that all throughout Paul's letters. In Ephesians 2.10, we read, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God did create us for good works. And in some ways, it's kind of like an attorney or a lawyer who gets hired by a legal firm that had a bunch of cases lined up for him. That lawyer has a responsibility to carry out those cases once he got hired. They were, they were prepared beforehand, but he has a responsibility to carry them out. Surely that's true, but is that the emphasis Paul is getting at? Remember how I explained that and, work out your salvation and God is at work in you. The problem with interpreting it this way is, quite literally, I, I put an and in that phrase. The for is there for a reason. So just to get a, a philosophical emphasis, we have to put that and in there. Instead, we need to see really what is he saying here? What is the emphasis Paul is trying to say? And I'll say it rests all on Two words, two small words that are often overlooked or ignored. What are those two words? It's right at the beginning of verse 13. For God, for God. Those two words that follow that first phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The problem is those first two ways of looking at it, don't interpret the phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, in light of what follows. For God is at work in you to will and to work his good pleasure. Listen, we could, we could read for as the very reason. In other words, the very reason we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling is because God is at work in us. Not Bill or Bob or Susie or Sally. God is the one who is at work in us. So we want to make sure we're seeing the emphasis of this, this text. It's not that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's hard or necessarily or because God is sovereign and we are responsible. Yes, those are true, but that's not what Paul is getting at. 
for God in this text means we must understand, work out your salvation in light of who God is. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and righteousness. God is infinite and loving, sovereign and good. He is in control. We need to remind ourselves of that. These are all the traits that we learned about in the God Is series this summer, and we need to remind ourselves of those, not just once during the summer, but continually. That although the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We serve the God who saved us from our sins, and if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So we have a serious faith because of who God is and what he has done for us. We have a life that serves God seriously then. I think Gordon Fee, a theologian, says it really well in his commentary. He says, work out your salvation, obeying God. We should do it as those who know proper awe in the presence of God. One does not live out the gospel casually or lightly but as one who knows what it means to stand in awe of the living God. Paul wants to encourage believers to persevere in their faith, but to do that takes two things. The first thing is Paul is calling us to a serious faith. Our working out of our salvation isn't because of some tangential reasons, but primarily because of who it is that we are serving. We are serving the living God of the universe, the sovereign king of the universe, When I was in seminary, many notable professors worked at our school and other professors would fly in and they'd send out an email and we'd have an opportunity to pick them up from the airport or go help them move boxes, some kind of mundane task usually. But you know what? They didn't have to wait long for people to respond. People would jump on that opportunity just to have a chance to interact with maybe their favorite professor or someone that they really admired. People would jump on it. Often there there were almost like a waiting list of people waiting to, to serve this person. Why was that? It was because people admired them. Imagine someone that you really admired. Not someone that you just knew, but someone that you admired from afar, who you, who you wish that you could interact with. Wouldn't you do anything to be around that person, just to have a few minutes to glean wisdom from them or or whatever it was, even if it was weeding their yard or, or whatever, you, you would just do it to be around that person. Now, isn't it interesting that the dignity of the person and respect you feel for the person increases the willingness to serve that person? And you serve that person seriously in any role, it doesn't matter. Some of you may know where I'm going Here's the problem. We often don't carry this over to God. Too often I fear that God is the God of our minds, existing in some kind of abstract reality, but not the God of our hearts. Too often I fear that is true. I'll repeat it again, that God is the God of our minds and not the God of our hearts. But he needs to be not only the God of our minds, but also the God of our hearts. 
We are talking about service to the living God, the God who made a way for us to be adopted into his family despite our sin. That means that whatever position he has us in, we should be motivated to be the very best we can be because of who he is. In the Bible, the the proper response of an interaction with the living God, we can look in the Old Testament, is is fear and trembling. They approach God with, with fear and trembling. And we have the living God of the universe, not just, it's not just an interaction, he's inside of us. He lives in us, he has renewed us, and is transforming us. We live in light of who God is. There's a seriousness to the Christian life. We need to take our calling seriously and not casually. Whether it's at work or in home in our, our daily lives, In each of these places, we we speak the truth in love, sharing the good news of Jesus. And yes, if you're a business person, a a farmer, a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor, a waitress, whatever you do, God has called you to work out your salvation with a seriousness that invades all of your life, all of your heart, and it changes your perspective on the the way that you live. Now, I I don't know if, if this story is true, but I thought it really gets this point well, and uh, President John F. Kennedy was supposedly touring the space center where they were racing the Russians to the moon, and he saw a janitor feverishly cleaning the floors, and he had never seen someone clean the floors like that before, and he stopped everyone and wanted to go introduce himself, so he stopped over and said, hey, um, how how are you doing? And, And the gentleman smiled and said, hi, Mr. President. And President Kennedy said, you know, what are, what are you doing? I've never seen someone clean the floors quite like that. And the gentleman looked up at him and, and said, Mr. President, I am helping put a man on the moon. I'm helping put a man on the moon. That man took his job seriously because of the purpose and the people he was working for. In the same way, we are to take our faith seriously. We're to work out our salvation. Paul uses the term workers all throughout his letters. That's what we are. We're on a a mission, a calling, to work seriously because of the one who works in us, the living God of the universe. The living God of the universe is at work in you. He's at work in me. And it demands a seriousness as we approach our daily lives. So what does working out our salvation look like? What does it look like to work out our salvation seriously? It looks like being more than just a Sunday Christian. It means getting involved in ministry at at the church, volunteering in children's ministry or small group leadership. We we always need leaders. It, It means more also than just the church building. It might mean going down to Brookside. It might be mean being involved in a ministry at your work. You are a light not just among your Christians, obviously, but in the workplace, wherever you are, you are a light. What does it look like to be a Christian all throughout the week and to take your faith seriously? It's not just attending church. For me and and the parents in here, it means not just relying on the children's ministry to disciple our kids. It means, what does it look like for me to disciple my children all throughout the week, every day of the week, not just taking them to church on Sunday? I can be honest, at times, 
I'm better at that at times. I'm worse at that. And that's something that I need to hear from this text. In Deuteronomy 6-7, Moses commanded the Israelites, you shall teach them the laws of God diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. We're responsible all throughout our lives. It doesn't just happen on Sundays. Those are just some examples. Listen to this. This is important. Seriousness, then, this is kind of how I define seriousness, means, seriousness means an unswerving intentionality to follow God because of who God is. Seriousness means an unswerving intentionality to follow God because of who God is. Christians are called to serious joy, and again, there are, there are two parts to this call. The, the call to serious faith and the call to joyful faith. So look with me at verses 14 to 18 as we look at the call to joyful faith. Call, the call to serious faith tells us the reality that we're supposed to live in, but it doesn't tell us how to do it. There's a seriousness and weightiness to the Christian life, but that doesn't mean that it should be tedious or mundane. Paul then is moving on to the practical side of things. So, so how do we live out this serious faith? So let's look at 14 and see if we can get some insight to where Paul is going. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So let's just stop there for a second. Where did this come from? First, we have work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then we have this kind of specific behavioral thing about not grumbling. What's going on there? Did, did Paul just miss a paragraph or did he forget a transition or did the scribe miss something? Is Paul a choppy writer? Well, we know that Paul writes logically, so that can't be it. The first clue here is our understanding of the previous verses. That's why it's so important to get the emphasis of what Paul is saying. If he's just making some general philosophical statement, it would seem odd to just switch right to some specifics. But he's not. He's telling us specifically what the Christian faith should look like. He's telling us how it should play out. If he were just telling us that general implication, it would seem odd. In other words, we could ask the question after 12 and 13, what does this look like practically? So in 14 to 18, we have the call to joyful faith. First, um, verses 14 to 15 give us a part of the, the practical idea of that call, and that's not grumbling or disputing. And then secondly, in 16 to 18, we have the command to hold fast to the word of life. And that's found again in 16 to 18. So first, let's look at 14, the command not to grumble. How does not grumbling and disputing relate to taking our faith seriously and doing it in a joyful manner? Have you ever been at work or with a group or on a, maybe a vacation with relatives and there's that one person who is just always grumbling and complaining, maybe that person is you. I'm not going to point any fingers, but we've all been around people or been in that situation. And it's not a good situation to be in. It, it usually brings the group down and it sets a tone to the trip or the event. But yet in our culture, we're told that venting is good. Get it off your chest. 
Complaining is okay. We see that all throughout TV sitcoms, everything. But acting like this doesn't make you feel better. It actually makes you feel worse. And the crazy thing of this is that there's actually scientific evidence to prove it, that it makes you feel worse. Scientists have a phrase, neurons that fire together, wire together, and, and when you complain, there, there's behaviors in your brain that, that can create paths. In other words, your brain is a very efficient machine, and it builds bridges to get things done more efficiently, which is great except for when it's not. Think, think of it like this. If you're a golfer and you practice the perfect swing over and over again, I think they say it's like 10,000 hours to become an expert, but if you practice it over and over again, you're going to probably have a pretty good golf swing because you're not going to have to think about it. It's just going to be natural. Now, if you practice the bad swing over and over and over again, it doesn't matter how many hours you put into it, it still is going to be a bad swing. Now, it doesn't end there. Actually, when you complain and grumble, it affects part of your brain called the hippocampus, and it actually damages it. And some of you said, wait, what did you say? Hippocamp? I'm not sure what, what that was. But it, it's a part of your brain, and it's not like the appendix that maybe we don't need as much. You actually really need it for intelligent thinking and critical thought. And did you know that Alzheimer's is a disease of the hippocampus, and if you complain, you're more likely to get Alzheimer's? Did you know that there's a hormone that's released that actually makes it more likely for you to have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, or even a stroke? So why do I go off on this tangent about physical things? The reality is that the physical things are just the beginning. And that we haven't even talked about the relational or the spiritual consequences of grumbling and complaining. And I think I could sit down with any of you and we could talk about for hours about churches that have divided and gotten in disputes over the color of the carpet, the color of the paint, or the worship songs that they're singing, the style of music. Think about the ruined witness for Christ just because of the color of paint on the wall. There are serious consequences that go far beyond the physical. If you want to blend in to the world, we just get into disagreements and, and grumble. But that's not what God has called us to. Look, we've, we've all complained in our lives. But the reality is complaining and arguments in our culture is just a normal part of life to our culture. But God says it's not normal, it's not good. In fact, it's not even healthy in any sense. Notice he says the purpose, Paul says the purpose of not grumbling and disputing right in verse 15. He says that you may be blameless, innocent, and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. There's a twistedness of our generation, of the world, that tends to view things in a backwards manner. What we know as virtue, the culture view, views as vice. So, there's a lot there. 
Paul is telling us that when we are joyful, positive, and unified, we, we act righteously and as innocent children of God. Paul is telling us that the result of acting that way, being joyful and unified, is that we'll be blameless and innocent. Joy and unity is not just some holy behavior achieved by the best of Christians, but it's the calling of all Christians. All of us are called to that. So what is the problem if we don't act like that? Well, the the problem for the evangelist Paul's mind, at least practically, is that it doesn't draw people. You blend in and no one finds it satisfying. Imagine it this way. Imagine you have your favorite type of ice cream. You know exactly what it's going to taste like. You know what the label says. For me, it's the extreme chocolate moose tracks, the purple cow brand at Meyer. I just think that's the best ice cream in the world. And I just had some last night. But imagine that I'm going into that carton of ice cream, just for a spoon, and I pull it out, I'm going for one of those fudge cups, and then as I eat that ice cream, there's a piece of dead fish in that ice cream. And don't, don't ask me how that fish got there, I'm not sure. But I'll tell you what, I would spit that out as fast as I possibly could. And that is what happens when the outside world looks in and they know what Christians are called to, and yet we don't live as lights in the world. It becomes repulsive to some or to others. They just rule it out. So listen to this. Jesus says, that salt, we are salt and light in the world. So what good is salt that has lost its saltiness? We are to be light and salt, but if we don't stand out, what good are we? Instead, salt is meant to bring out the flavors of food, like we are meant to bring out the flavors of God in the world. Peace, shalom, the way that God intended it, we're meant to be a light that brings out what God intended in the world. We're supposed to show others the light of God. That the world wasn't meant to be a place of brokenness and sorrow and pain, but of joy and joy in God. Our joyful, positive, and unified lives shine as lights in a world that does not know God or true peace, but I really believe longs for it. God has set eternity in the heart of man, we read in Ecclesiastes 3.11. People desire God, they long for it, So listen to this, it's important. I'll read it again. Our joyful, positive, and unified lives shine as lights in a world that does not know God or know true true peace, but longs for it. When you respond like this, it, it stands out. That's what Paul is saying. You shine as lights. And remember, there were those negative effects, but they're actually positive effects. Those hormones are decreased in your body. And and Christians really should be the most thankful people and the most joyful people. Proverbs 16 is probably one of my favorite chapters in the book of Proverbs, if not in the Bible. And you know what Solomon said years before medical research um, to the extent that we have now. He said, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Some of you are saying amen, right? But it's... It's beyond just the gray hairs. The idea there is that if we live righteously, not that we will live to be old in this broken world, but 
There's a reason why God has the commands that he has. It's for our good. He wants us to prosper. He wants us to do well. That was what we were intended for. And we know that the broken world, our sin, has prevented that. So God wants us to be joyful and yet take our faith seriously. And the great thing here is those physical benefits are are just the tip of the iceberg. Having a, a serious and joyful faith impacts your relationships and your spiritual life. When you're at peace with others and live joyfully with others in a serious faith, you'll be at a better place with God and a better place with others. You won't have the relational tension and we'll feel the presence of God more fully in our daily lives and shine as lights in the world. The question is, how do we shine as lights in the world? How do we make sure that we have fuel for our flame? Paul directly links shine as lights in the world, that phrase in 15, to what follows. Look at verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life. So that is the second practical command here. And you might say that doesn't look quite like a command. It's just a phrase. But the truth is that 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 phrase links directly up with shine as lights, which links directly up to do not complain or grumble. So the command to do not complain or grumble results in, this is another way of saying it, shining as lights in the world. And how do you do that? By holding fast to the word of life. So in a sense, it is a flavor of a command here. It's the way we shine as lights in the world. It's the fuel to be joyful and unified. So how much time are are you spending in God's word? How closely are you holding to it? A couple verses come to mind. Hide his word in your heart that you might not sin against him. His light is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You see, the word of God has sustaining power. God designed it that way, but how will it help you if it's sitting on a shelf? It's like if you have a deadly infection and the doctor prescribes you medicine and you put it on the shelf, it's not going to do much good just by you sitting in the chair and looking at it. (laughs) You actually have to take it off the shelf. That's what God's word is to us. If if we forsake God's word, we are surrendering surrendering ourselves to the darkness of the world. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Does the word of God guide your daily decisions? Do you prioritize it over TV or other things? Listen, we all want to be joyful. You want to be joyful. I want to be joyful. Let me tell you, we will not be joyful in the Christian life if we do not hold fast to the word of God. Do you want to stop grumbling? Saturate yourself in the word. Do you want to stop being bitter? Saturate yourself in the word. Do you want to stop sinning? Saturate yourself in the word. Do you want to be at peace and unified with others? Saturate yourself in the word. Do you want to have joy in all circumstances? Saturate yourself in the word. Do you want to be near to God? Saturate yourself in the word. Christians are called to a serious joy. That means working out our salvation with 
fear and trembling because of the one who is working in us, the mighty one who is working in us. It means being joyful and seeking unity and holding fast to the word so that we can shine as lights in the world. Paul tells us that if we do this, this is in 17 and 18, his labors will not be in vain. Our labors will not be in vain. See, he says, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. And see how he ended it there. It's about our joy, the joy of others, and the glory of God. Serious joy is the life of the Christian. Christians are called to a serious joy. Of all the people in the world, we should be the most devoted and the most joyful. So as we close, would, would you all just bow your heads with me right now? Would you all with me think of, think of just one area that you could take a next step in? Maybe you tend to grumble a lot. Maybe you think of yourself as an idealist like, like I do, but maybe sometimes, like I can, you're more of a, a complainist or cynical. Maybe you're encouraging and you need to encourage others more. Maybe you need to prioritize how you hold fast to God's word. That You need to pray that God would strengthen you to do that. Maybe you've realized today that you want true joy in this life. That you don't want the dead fish, but you want what the Bible actually claims. You want the truth of God. True joy, not what the world offers. You can come to God today and you can ask for forgiveness and you can have eternal joy forever. You can do that right now. So whatever it is, we're just going to take a few minutes or a few, few moments. Just think of that one next step and then I will close in prayer before Pastor Mark comes up. So just a few moments. God, it is easy in our lives, in the busyness of our culture, to keep you as a God of our minds and not a God of our hearts and our affections. And we often fail to be devoted to you, and we ask that you would fill all of us with your spirit, give us strength to take the step that we need to take so that we can live our lives with serious joy. And we thank you that you made a way in your son, Jesus Christ, so that we can have hope and that we can live a life of true, serious joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.